following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series at the moment uh, called I Wish That Wasn't in the Bible. And we're looking at the stuff in the Bible, the passages in the Bible that are the most bizarre, the most weird, the most embarrassing, the most awkward, the most offensive, the most disturbing, the most gruesome, the, most, the stuff that we just wish wasn't there. Um, and so just for the benefit of those who are new, just for the basketball team, we don't always talk about this stuff. Um, we, you know, we, don't, we don't just gravitate to these parts of the Bible. But we're doing this deliberately. We are looking at the, at the particularly strange stuff in the Bible. Um, the stuff that we honestly, many of us, just wish wasn't there because we have a conviction as a church community that all Scripture is inspired by God and even the parts that are really strange are inspired by God and it's useful. They're useful for our growth as Christians and they've got some relevance to our lives. So we just want to take an honest look at these passages. Can't answer every question about them and we're still uncomfortable about them, but we just want to have an honest look and, and seek to place them in the context of the big story of the Bible and see what's going on. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage uh, from Second Kings on Elisha and the bears. Remember that? And hopefully that didn't give you nightmares. Uh, but that story was a particularly gruesome story. And this morning, I want to look at a passage that's equally gruesome, except this one is in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, which might seem strange to you because you don't normally think the Psalms is a book that's got really weird and bizarre and offensive stuff in it, Right? I mean, the Psalms is a book of worship. It's a book of devotion, and it exalts the glory of God, and that's where we go to feel good about ourselves. But not always. The Psalms, there are many Psalms that glorify God and praise Him and give thanks to Him, but there are also many Psalms that capture the more gloomy side of human existence, Psalms that express anger and rage and frustration and sorrow and grief and loss. And these are Psalms that we call the Psalms of Lament. And these psalms of lament are, in fact, the biggest genre of psalms in the whole book, which says something, doesn't it, about the human condition. Uh, psalms of lament. And among the psalms of lament, there's one that has one verse in it. It really does just come down to one verse that I've found particularly disturbing for a long time. And when I decided to do this series, it was one of the first passages that popped into my mind. I thought, I'd, you know, I'd love to just jump into that one because that has just not sat well with me for a long time. It's Psalm 137. So if you've got a Bible, uh, pull it out and have it in front of you. If you've got a phone or a tablet with the Bible on it, uh, good time to turn that on and uh, get open the Bible app and close down Facebook first and whatever else you've been using so far in the service and uh, get the Bible app underway. And Psalm 137 is where we're going to be. Just to, just to set the scene for this, you might remember a few weeks ago, Brad Carr spoke here and he spoke on Psalm 33. That was a psalm of praise. So that was a psalm of praise and thanksgiving and glorifying God, very upbeat, very celebratory. Think of this one as everything that Psalm 33 is not. Now, this is the opposite. This is an anti-praise psalm, if you like. This is pretty intense. This is difficult. And uh, it's expressed in some pretty difficult words. Let me read it to you. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? 
If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear down its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That is pretty grim. That's pretty disturbing. If it hadn't been for that last verse, you know, we could just about have stomached this, but that just pushes it over the line, doesn't it? Into the realm of the offensive and disturbing and downright repulsive. I don't even want to make any jokes about that. That is just awful. That is an awful thing uh, that's there, an awful sentiment. Uh, and the, the, the irony is, or the shame of it is, that um, the psalm starts so well. I mean, this is the Boney M psalm. You know, I, some of you were singing it, weren't you? As I was reading, some of you were tapping your feet, by the rivers above. That's a great song, right? And it's so catchy, and they got the words from here. The Bible didn't copy Boney M. Boney M copied the Bible, just to make that clear for you. Boney M got the words from the Bible. They lifted it straight out of Psalm 137, and thank goodness they didn't include all of Psalm 137 in their song. They just stuck with the first couple of verses, which are a little bit safer. Um, but it's just beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's sad, but it's beautiful beginning of the psalm. And then this awful ending. The psalm must have one of the most well-loved beginnings and one of the most hated endings of any psalm. And it's, it's this kind of sentiment at the end of the psalm that really does just paint a pretty nasty picture of God. Even though God doesn't do anything in this psalm, he doesn't actually, he's not seen as acting. Uh, but this, if this reflects the kind of person God is, he's a pretty nasty character. If this reflects the kind of thing that God would do to innocent children, it reinforces the view that God is a pretty nasty piece of work. It's the kind of view that Richard Dawkins expressed in his book, The God Delusion. He says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Took me a long time to get my mouth around that. There's some very interesting words there. You might need to look some of them up when you get home. But though, I mean, he expresses something a lot of people feel, that the God, at least of the Old Testament, is pretty mean. He's pretty cruel. He's this capricious cosmic bully who just smites people he doesn't like or that do something mean against him or his chosen people. And a lot of people live with that view. That might be your view of God. And that might be the view that you've grown up with. And it can be a view that is reinforced by passages like this. So what I want to do, the same way that we did a couple of weeks ago, is try to put this psalm in the context of the bigger story of what's going on in the Bible. Not going to be able to answer every question, not going to satisfy every, every problem, but I want to look at the context of this psalm and see what sense we can make of it. So this psalm is written in the context of Israel's exile. That's very clear. This is a psalm of exile, and the exile was the darkest time in Israel's history in the Old Testament, the absolute low point. It was about 586 BC that it happened. 
And centuries before that, Israel had been becoming more and more unfaithful to God, turning away from God, turning away from the law, turning away from the covenant, worshipping the gods of the nations around them, bowing down to the Baals and, and just making their own gods and completely abandoning the God who had rescued them and saved them until finally God brought upon Israel the most severe form of his judgment that he had promised them, that he had already warned them about in the law, which was the judgment of exile. And God had said, if you continue generation after generation violating my law, breaking covenant with me, ultimately, I'm going to expel you from the land. Ultimately, I'm going to spit you out of the land that I brought you into, the special land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of blessing. God says, if you continue in apostasy, eventually you'll be sent away from the land that I have given you. And that's exactly what happened. 586 BC, the Babylonian army rolled into town. Babylonia was the big world superpower at the time. They sent the armies in. They laid siege to Jerusalem. They burned the city to the ground. They leveled the temple. The Jerusalem temple was, was flattened, not one rock left on top of another. And they carted off the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem in the, in the area of Judea. That's what nations did. That was the foreign policy. When you conquered a nation, you took the people and you displaced them. You took them back to your country and you settled them in, maybe as slaves, maybe just as inhabitants in your country. So they couldn't continue to function there in their own land and rise up again. And you sent your people in then to populate their land. That's what had happened to Israel. And that was the situation they were now in. That's why you've got a group of exiles sitting by a river in Babylon, because they had been dislocated, wrenched out of their land. And this was not just a national problem. It wasn't just a national crisis. This was a spiritual issue. It's important to grasp with the exile that it's a spiritual issue, that this represented God's judgment on Israel. And for them, for these exiles as they sat here, it really represented God abandoning them. I mean, God had brought his presence into this temple in Jerusalem. He had been with them. He'd promised them so many good things. And now all of that was just up in smoke, literally. So God, as far as they were concerned, God has, has disappeared. God's left the building. God's no longer with us. The temple that housed his presence is in ruins. And we are now out of the land that he'd promised to us. It's a spiritual crisis that's going on for the nation of Israel. And then it's made worse by the fact that these Babylonians are hanging around just mocking them. That seems to be what's going on here. Because they're being tormented. Not only are they lamenting the fact they've lost their homeland, but now the Babylonians are just mocking them and saying, hey, why, why don't you sing us one of the songs of Zion? Why don't you sing us one of the Zion songs? And the Zion songs are in the Psalms. You can read them. They're the songs about Zion. Zion is just another word for Jerusalem. So when you think of Zion, that's the mountain that Jerusalem was on. And Zion represent. you read the Zion Psalms, it's, it, it's everything that's great about Jerusalem, everything that's special about that place, that God's presence was there, that his king was there. And these Psalms talk about God's going to be so strong on behalf of his people. He's going to surround Zion. He's going to deliver it. He's going to protect it. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. Israel is going to be a great nation. No one will ever be able to attack it. It's going to be peace. Uh, for all time, and the kingdom of Israel will endure forever. And so these Babylonians are saying, yeah, 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 why don't you sing us one of those songs? Hmm. Because Jerusalem's in ruins. And the king of Jerusalem is sitting in a Babylonian prison with his eyes plucked out. And the, and the people of Jerusalem are scattered throughout the land of Babylon. 
a dispersed and alienated people. So this is just sheer mockery. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, knowing full well that Zion was in ruins. And so from within that kind of place, that kind of humiliation and powerlessness, these exiles, they refuse to praise. They refuse to sing a song of praise, but they do sing, and they sing the song of lament. They do compose, one of them or a group of them, we don't know, they do compose this beautiful psalm. And it's, it's sorrowful and it's anguished, but it is a beautiful piece of poetry. And they sing this deep lament, expressing their grief and loss. They miss their homeland. They miss Jerusalem. And they pledge themselves never to forget Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its skill, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I forget Jerusalem, they, they hold the memory of the great city in their minds. Jerusalem, Jerusalem means the peace of God, the shalom of God among his people. And they're remembering that. And they're calling that to mind. When God gave us peace, when we dwelt with God in Jerusalem, in peace and freedom, and that's everything that they're now not experiencing. But they remember Jerusalem. And as they remember Jerusalem, they just find themselves getting more and more angry at the situation they're in, more and more angry with their enemies, more and more angry with the Babylonians. And that's what gives rise to these last few awful verses in the Psalms. First, they ask for God to judge the Edomites. You see the Edomites there? They were the ones who, when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they egged them on. They were the support crew to the Babylonians. And they were the ones saying, yeah, tear it down, tear down the temple, go on, yep, get rid of it. That's the Edomites. That was their role. So first, these exiles have a go at them. And say, God, judge them. Remember what they've done. Remember it against them. Judge them for what they've done. And then they call God's judgment down on the Babylonians themselves. Happy is the one who repays you for what you've done. And then this awful last verse, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It is an awful thing to, to say. It's an awful thing to pray for anyone against anyone, even your worst enemy. But it's at least helpful, I think, to understand what the writer of that psalm was actually praying for when they said those really disturbing words. When you think about the infants of Babylon, think about the children of Babylon or of any, any country, any nation, what do the children of a nation represent? The future of that country. The children of Babylon, the infants of Babylon represent the future, just as the children of New Zealand represent our future. So to pray and ask God to destroy the children, to destroy the infants, really what the psalmist is asking for and praying for is God, take away their future. Destroy their future. He's praying for an end to the Babylonian exile. He's praying for an end to the empire itself. He's not literally focused on this gruesome image of infanticide, but he's praying for something much bigger. God, let the evils of this empire come to an end. Let this empire not just be able to continue its oppression and its injustice and its violence generation after generation after generation, but God, bring it to an end. Take away its future. Rob it of its future. And that happens to be expressed through a particularly gruesome image. But the point is much deeper. God, bring this empire down. Take away its future. There's a guy called Eric Zenger. 
And he talks about these psalms, psalms of wrath and psalms of vengeance. And he, he rewords the last couple of verses of the psalm. He's not trying to change the Bible. He's just saying, let's look at what the psalmist actually meant and what they were actually saying. And he says, if you want to use this psalm in worship today, in a contemporary context, you might want to slightly reword it to capture that deeper meaning. Here's how he rewords the last verse. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy is the one who brings you to judgment because of what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes you and puts an end to your rule forever. So that captures the meaning. He's not just trying to fudge the issue. It says what it says. But he's trying to say, this is what the heart of the psalmist is for. The end of evil, the end of an empire, the end of a pretty brutal regime. It doesn't take away from the brutality of what he's praying for, but at least helps us to see the direction in which he is praying. But even though that might be the case, this psalm raises a difficult question for us. It raises the question, is God really a God of vengeance? That's the issue here. Is God really like this? Is God a God of vengeance? Is he kind of a, a payback kind of God? Does he retaliate? Does he get people back? Is he kind of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth? I mean, that's in his law that he gave to Moses. Is he still doing that today? Does he do this kind of thing? Just get people, you know, get even with people who, who, who do something to him or, or do something he doesn't like? Is that who God is? We don't tend to like to think of God as being vengeful, but in fact, the Bible describes him with that word. Psalm 94 says, God who avenges, shine forth. Literally, it says, God of vengeance, shine forth. So right there in the Bible, you've got this description of God as being a God of vengeance. I think the problem is that we typically define vengeance the way that we experience it and the way that we want it. We define vengeance in very human terms. And for us, when we want vengeance, when you want vengeance against someone that's hurt you, wronged you, wounded you, it tends to be a pretty destructive thing. What you want when you want vengeance is you want to see the other person suffer, right? You want to see them hurt. You want to see them pay. You want to see them suffer the consequences for what they've done to you or for your, to your family or to someone you love. You want to see them squirm. You want to see them hurt. It tends to be our, our form of vengeance tends to be very emotive. It tends to be very spiteful. It tends to be very uncontrolled. It's this visceral response to the situation. And we just want to tear that person down. It's a destructive form of vengeance. But that is not the vengeance of God. When the Bible describes God as a God of vengeance, God's vengeance is always redemptive. His vengeance is always for the purpose of establishing and continuing His redemptive work on earth, establishing and continuing His kingdom. God's vengeance really is about restoring His shalom, His peace. Restoring what Jerusalem stands for. That's always the way God's vengeance is directed. That God created a world of shalom and we have violated it. Through violence, through injustice, through oppression, through wickedness, greed, corruption, whatever it is, we've violated God's shalom and God has vowed himself to restore it. God has pledged himself to step in and restore shalom, to restore peace, to make the world right again. That's what his vengeance is. And that's what we want, isn't it? I mean, we want justice. 
We want to know there's a day that's coming when evil is going to be dealt with, when sin is going to be finally done away with, when all the wrongs of the world are finally going to be put right. We want to know that day is coming. We want to believe that there could be such a world that God might bring about. And the Bible promises there will be. God will step in. He will put the world back together again. He will bring shalom again to the world. But it's going to require vengeance. It's going to require evil to be dealt with. It's going to require those who continue to oppose and reject God to be put aside. It is going to require God to deal with what frustrates his plans and what opposes his plans and opposes his shalom. It's going to require the very presence of shalom, the kingdom of God, requires God to vanquish evil, put aside evildoers. That's what God has promised he will do. That's his vengeance. It always lines up with God's redemptive purposes. It always lines up with his justice, and it is always for the purpose of establishing his shalom upon the earth. Very different to our form of vengeance. So in that sense, God is a God of vengeance if we understand that rightly, if we understand vengeance in God's terms as being redemptive and as being based around shalom. And ultimately, there are times in the Bible where God does this, where he steps in and he brings his vengeance and he brings his justice, and he did it here. Seventy years after the Israelites were exiled, God stepped in. The Babylonian Empire did crumble, and the Persian Empire swung into power. And the political winds shifted, and Cyrus, the ruler, was more merciful, and Israel was allowed to return home. In a sense, God answered this prayer. He didn't literally do it through infanticide. There's no indication that God literally fulfilled what verse 9 asks for. But he did bring that empire down. He did take away the future of that empire. But I think that what this psalm is asking for is something more than that. I think this is more than just one empire. This psalm is asking for God to deal with evil in the world. And evil is more than just one Babylonian empire. Evil is the presence of everything that frustrates and opposes the plans of God. And ultimately, I think the psalm points to a day when that will happen. When you look at it, this is a psalm that describes a great contest that's going on between two cities. It's the city of Jerusalem and the city of Babylon. And in the Bible, these two cities come to represent more than just the cities themselves. Jerusalem comes to represent the reign of God on earth. Jerusalem was considered to be the center of the earth. It represents the power, the reign, the peace, the rule of God, the kingdom of God. And Babylon comes to represent everything else. Everything outside of God's reign and God's rule, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of the evil one of sin and darkness, demonic forces, of everything that opposes the purposes of God. And the golden storyline that runs its way right through the entire Bible is the story of Jerusalem versus Babylon. It's the story of the kingdom of God moving forward and the kingdom of Babylon moving backwards. At this point in the story, Babylon's winning. At this point in the story, Babylon's destroyed Jerusalem, literally. Jerusalem's in ruins. It's a dark point in the story. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the biblical story. You go all the way through the biblical story and you get to the book of Revelation. And some of you are here. We did this series in Revelation and you know one of the images that pops up in Revelation, guess what? It's Jerusalem and Babylon again. This contest again. 
between the great cities. In the latter chapters of Revelation 18 through 21, it's the contest between Jerusalem and Babylon. And in Revelation 18 and 19, you have the fall of Babylon. You have Babylon crumbling to the ground, just like they ransacked Jerusalem. Revelation 18 to 19 used the same kind of language to describe now Babylon's crumbled. And there's this kind of mock lament for Babylon, which is not really a lament because no one cares that Babylon's crumbled because it was evil. Daughter Babylon, you know, your streets are deserted. No one's inhabiting you anymore. You've lost everything and Babylon's gone. It represents the day Christ returns and God finally does away with all evil, all sin, all destruction, everything that opposes him and his shalom is established. And you see then in Revelation 21, at the beginning of Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, coming down out of heaven from God, beautifully dressed as a bride for her husband, established upon the earth. It is the city of God, represents the kingdom of God coming to earth and the shalom of God being established and filling the whole earth, permeating every single part of creation. Babylon is finally gone. Jerusalem is finally established. That's the final chapter in the story. That's the final scene in the story. Even though this is a really dark chapter in the middle of the story in Psalm 137, that's not the end. The end is that the kingdom of God comes in power and all evil is destroyed. And the reason that's the end of the story is because in the middle of history, you have the cross. You have the cross of Christ. And all of God's vengeance was poured out upon Christ on the cross. God's vengeance, his justice, was fully satisfied in Christ on the cross. That's what has secured such a glorious future where Babylon will fall and Jerusalem will be established because Christ has borne the vengeance of God, the one person who didn't deserve it. Like the innocent children of Psalm 137, Jesus has suffered a murderous death, but he's done it to take upon himself the vengeance we deserve because we're all culpable. We're all Babylon, in a sense. We've all participated in rejecting God, opposing God, telling him to shove off, ignoring him, living life the way we want to live it. But Jesus has taken all of that. Jesus has taken the vengeance of God. And so now, because Christ has fully satisfied God's vengeance, God's justice, now we are called to live in a different way. Now we're called to live on the other side of vengeance. Vengeance was dealt with on the cross. We're on the other side of that now. We're called to walk a path of peace. And I want to show that to you by just highlighting one final thing in this passage. Look in uh, verse 8 and 9 at the way that these verses are introduced. The language at the start of each verse. Happy is the one who repays you. And then in verse 9, happy is the one who seizes your infants. You know another word for happy? It's blessed. You could translate this. Blessed is the one who repays you. Blessed is the one who does this. Does that sound like anything else in the Bible that you've read? When Jesus says, blessed is the pure in heart, blessed is the merciful. These, in Psalm 137, at the end of these last couple of verses, these are beatitudes. That's, that's, that's the language. Blessed is the one. They're awful beatitudes. They're brutal, but they are beatitudes. Blessed is the one. And if you put these next to Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the difference is striking. 
Here in Psalm 137, blessed is the one who repays you, blessed is the one who seizes your children. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're insulted, when people say all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You couldn't have two more opposite beatitudes, could you, in the Bible? One, beatitudes of vengeance and beatitudes of blessing, beatitudes of peace. How do you possibly reconcile the fact that both those passages are in the Bible? The only thing that can reconcile those two sets of beatitudes is the cross of Christ. Because the cross stands in the middle of history as the place where God's vengeance was satisfied. And because vengeance has been done on the cross, we do not need to take it into our own hands. And we must not take it into our own hands. Now we are called to the path of peace instead of vengeance. Now we're called to the tough road of forgiveness instead of retaliation. Now we're called even to love our enemies, to pray for our enemies, even to rejoice when we're persecuted. These are hard things to do. But this is the path now we're called to take, not the path of vengeance because Jesus has suffered vengeance for us. And I found, you know, when you start talking about forgiveness instead of vengeance, that forgiveness is an idea that Christians love to talk about and it's very, very hard to do. It's very hard to do. We're all for forgiveness. We're all for loving our enemies right up to the point we actually have to do it. Right up to the point where someone actually messes with you or someone you love and then it's all over. Forget, forget forgiveness. You know, because you feel rage and you feel like this is unbelievably unfair, you feel that an injustice has been done and forgiveness goes out the window. What we want is vengeance. What you want is vengeance, right? I know. You want vengeance. We want vengeance. And, the, and we try to take it into our own hands. And I think for us Kiwis, there's a particular couple of styles of vengeance that we gravitate towards. One is passive-aggressive vengeance. We're really good at this. For the basketball team, just saying, just look out for this a little bit. You know, passive-aggressive vengeance. So what we'll tend to do, because we're not a particularly confrontational people, we'll try and get even another way. We'll use back channels, and we'll just talk to some other people about you. I'm not saying you guys in particular. But we'll just talk to other people to make sure they don't like you anymore. Or we'll try and maneuver in such a way that you don't get that opportunity or you lose that contract or so-and-so that you need influence from or whatever. We'll just make sure in some way you're hurt, but you'll never think it's from us or you'll never at least, there won't be a direct confrontation. We'll just work it so that you suffer. And the other form of vengeance that we take is the vengeance of the mind, the vengeance of the imagination. And we can be unbelievably creative in the scenarios we construct as to how we would love to get even with that person and what we would do with them if we just, or what we would have said to them or what I'd do if I met them in a dark alley or what I'd love to do. And we just concoct these elaborate scenarios in our mind and we think it's okay because no one else sees it. And it's only just in my mind, I'm not saying, and on the outside, you might be just really friendly and amicable and loving and, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've dealt with it, I've moved on. But on the, in the inside, you're seething. On the inside, you're slaying that person. On the inside, there's bitterness and there's rage and you are crucifying them in your mind. You're getting even with them in your mind. That is a form of vengeance. We've got to name it as such. We've got to see that's vengeance. And the gospel calls us to leave that behind. The gospel says you're not called to be a people of vengeance, not even vengeance in your imagination. 
You're called to be a people of peace because Christ has taken vengeance. And every time you try to take a little bit of it back, you're undermining what he's done on the cross. Romans 12, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It is mine to repay, says the Lord. Every time you try and take a bit, even in your mind, you're taking it away from Christ. He has fully satisfied the vengeance of God and he calls us to walk a path of peace and reconciliation, even in our thoughts. And what that means is that we are called to take all of our vengeance and our desire to get even and we are called just to lay it down at the cross. Ultimately, I think that's what this psalm does. Even though it is horrific, and I wish that last verse wasn't there as well, even though it's brutal and we don't want to read it and we don't want to listen to it, ultimately what that psalmist is doing is taking his rage and his vengeance and he's leaving it with God. He doesn't do the things that he prays in that psalm. He doesn't take it into his own hands. He talks about it and he's honest with his desire for vengeance, but he gives it to God and says, God, you take it. You deal with it. You deal with my enemies. I have to leave it with you. This is what the psalm is calling us to do, is to lay down our desire for vengeance. Let me read you another quote by Eric Zenger. He says, This psalm is an attempt in the face of the most profound humiliation and helplessness to suppress the primitive human lust for violence in one's own heart by surrendering everything to God, even our desire for vengeance even our desire to get even. It's taking all of that. It's taking all the rage you feel against the person that's hurt you and your family. It's taking all the injustice you feel because they're doing well and you're struggling and someone's hurt you but they seem to have gotten away with it. It's all that bitterness and it's taking it to the cross and it's laying it down because if you don't, it will kill you. If you don't, it's going to eat you up like a cancer. It is awful. It will bring you down and you will be giving power to the person who's hurt you by keeping that rage inside yourself. The only way to release our desire for vengeance is to give it to Christ and walk the narrow road of forgiveness, is to bring that vengeance to to the cross and lay it down and say, God, I give it to you. I can't deal with this. This desire to get even, it's bigger than me. It's all-consuming, but I lay it down before you. I give up my right to get even with them. I give up my right to bring it up with them. I give up my right to bring it up with anyone else. I give up my right to even think vengeful thoughts against them. And here's the hardest part. Now I'm going to pray for them. That's the hardest part, I think, of moving in the opposite direction of vengeance. Exactly what Jesus calls us to do, though. Pray for those who persecute you. I think over time, if you commit yourself to praying for that person who's hurt you, wounded you, and wronged you. It's very difficult over time to harbor strongly negative emotions if you are continually praying for God's blessing. It's really tough to do, but it's the most therapeutic thing for our own soul, and it's the most healing thing on the road to forgiveness, is to actually lift that person up before God and say, God, you know, everything in me wants to get even. Honestly, everything in me just wants to see them hurt and see them suffer. And I'd be lying if I thought or said otherwise. God, that's me. So you've got to be honest. But God, I lay it down. I lay it down before you. And I ask that you would take it. And I trust this person to you, and I trust that your justice has been done on the cross, and there'll be a day of reckoning one day, but I leave it with you. And I want to pray for them. I want to pray that you'd bless them and heal them and lead them. And I leave them, I release them, to you. It's a hard road to walk 
And I think it's not a one-time thing. Some of you are on that journey. I really believe forgiveness is not one time. It's every day, isn't it? Sometimes for the rest of your life. Forgiveness is continuing to lay down vengeance as long as the bitterness remains. Continuing to lay down your desire to get even as long as the negative feelings are still there. Often that's a road you'll need to walk for the rest of your life. The deeper the wound, the longer the time it's going to take to heal. That's the nature of our humanity. But we're called to move away from vengeance. We're called to do what the psalmist does, to give it to God and trust him with the other person and pursue forgiveness. Father, we feel that desire for vengeance in our own hearts, in our own ways. So many situations, God, in this room where we've been hurt and people we love have been hurt. And God, we we carry them like scars on our bodies. And just talking about it this morning has brought it all back to the surface. And sometimes we'd rather just suppress it and we'd rather just, just forget about it. But God, we can't deny that in our hearts we have this desire, this ugly desire for vengeance. And so Jesus, we just want to come this morning as simply as we can and just acknowledging that we are so broken and and so frail that we just bring all of our desire for vengeance our desire for retribution, our desire to retaliate, our desire to see other people hurt for the hurt they've done. God, we bring all of that and we lay it down at the foot of the cross. And we surrender it, God, to you. We take the burden that we've been carrying and we lay it down. We cast it upon you. And God, we know that you've invited us to do that. You welcome us to do that. You have open arms. You invite us to to lay that down and we do that in this moment right now, God. For those, Lord, some here that just have a touch of vengeance in their heart still. And they maybe didn't even think they did, but just as we examine our own hearts this morning, we know, God, there's still just a touch of vengeance there. There's still that bitterness to that person. And we lay it down this morning, God. We lay it down. We lay it down at the cross. And as we lay it down, we look up at the cross And we see you there, Jesus, hanging, bleeding, dying for us. And we want to acknowledge vengeance has been done. Vengeance has been satisfied. Vengeance has been fulfilled. It is finished. And so, God, we don't want to harbor this vengeance in our hearts. But we want to say this morning, as honestly as we can, that we forgive those who have wronged us, that we forgive those who have hurt us. We forgive them, we release them, and we even pray for them. We call their name to mind now, we call their face to mind. And hard as it is, God, we pray for them. And we pray that you would bless them because you've asked us to pray that for them. We don't feel like doing it, God. And honestly, we don't, we, don't, we still don't feel any particular positive thing towards them, but we pray for them, God, right now. And we pray that you would bless them. And we, we trust that in praying this, somehow, God, you're healing our heart. You are healing our soul. You're healing the wounds that have been caused. So heal us on the inside, God, by taking away our desire for vengeance. We surrender it to you. We surrender ourselves to you. In Christ's name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.